Hey, Phil, how are you? Good, Elliot. How are you doing? Good. So I thought uh, we might continue our Ukraine discussion. And um, as, as you and I have talked over uh, the last uh, couple of months, I realize you're an optimist and I think I'm a qualified optimist. So maybe if you could start by saying why you're a, a hardcore optimist and I'm a, I'll, I'll come back with you why I'm a qualified optimist. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I, I decided early in the war that what I would do is look and see what I was seeing and not try to be influenced by any of the pre-war judgments on the Russian military or pre-war assumptions we had about the Russian armed forces. And I would say, just look at what we're seeing as opposed to what we expected to see and to explain that away. And what I've seen from the very beginning um, of, of, of this sort of war going on is, I don't want to say an incompetent military, that's too strong, but a deeply flawed Russian military, uh, top and bottom, from it can't run complex operations, it can't really uh, express air power properly, it can't do combined arms, heck, it, can't, it, it hasn't advanced more than a kilometer or two per day in the Battle of the Donbass, and then one which has real morale problems. So I, I don't know how this army, once it sort of burns itself out, can actually hold on for that long. Yeah. That's my so I, you know, I look. I basically uh, agree with that. I, I, w- I would also say I think, you know, just as I've gotten to know you, you're a very empirical, which is the thing to do in a war, but you're also historically informed uh, about what wars in general are, are like, and I think that that can be very useful. So I'm a qualified optimist because I agree with you, and I agree that you know the motivation is clearly on the Ukrainian side. They they benefit from having this really quite considerable flow now of Western arms and munitions and kind of rare areas in which to train and recuperate a bit um, and a flow of intelligence. I'm a little bit cautious because, you know, there's so much that we don't know. I guess what strikes me, Phil, is we get these sort of strobe light views of what's going on uh, where, you know, you see with a great deal of clarity what happens at in an abortive river crossing, for example, or an ambush. But there are large things we don't know. So, you know, we don't know what are the Ukrainians doing to mobilize their manpower. They've clearly taken very heavy casualties. We don't really know in a comprehensive way what their morale is um, and things like that. Now, having said all that, it seems to me that the indications that you get is the other side is in considerably worse shape. And, And I thought one thing we might discuss a little bit is you know, what happens next? So I've been very struck when I talk to government officials, the assumption seems to be stalemate. And, you know, you and I are both students of uh, World War One, among other things. And of course, what strikes me about World War One is sometimes you get militaries that collapse. Uh, I can imagine that being either side. I think it's more likely the Russian side. Does that make sense to you? Well, I think you're, uh, the problem about stalemate is you actually need large, well-supplied armies. You know, when you had, say, stalemate historically on the Western Front in, say, 1915-16, you had large, well-supplied armies. These armies aren't that large uh, in terms of, of personnel. We're talking 100,000, maybe 150,000 Russian troops. We don't know how many for the, the Ukrainians. And this is a huge front. And that's why I agree with you. Stalemate seems to me 
something where you when you would have a lot of force regeneration, you'd be able to bring in a lot of Nord troops, hold the line, and slug it out. But I, I, I wonder if the armies are large enough to actually fight a long multi-year campaign. I don't know what you think about that. I, you know, I tend to think not, um, in part because, it, it, you know, as far as one can tell, the, the kind of combat that they're seeing is of an intensity that over a period of time that we haven't seen in the Western world for a very, very long time. You know, it's comparable with World War II, you know, maybe some of the worst episodes of the Vietnam War like Way City. But the point is that this has been going on for months and months now. And there's a kind of accumulated fatigue, which eventually sets in, which is one of the reasons why I tend to think that there's, there is a chance that you'll begin to see unit collapses, most likely on the Russian side, particularly because they're clearly scraping the bottom of the manpower barrel. Absolutely. I think, and, and I think we have to look at this war in terms of a tra- trajectory. And I'm not sure that's getting enough coverage. That the what do you mean by that? Well, the Russian army is now less well-armed than it was on February 24th. It's got less well-trained individuals. So in the trajectory, it's still large. It still has a huge amount of firepower. But the trajectory is to less good equipment, stuff in storage, you know, T-62s in some cases. So the trajectory of Russian power is trending downwards, and they don't have the ability to make a lot of new good stuff. The yeah. Ukrainian trajectory is the opposite. They are going to soon be much better armed than they were on February 24th. They're getting yeah. a lot better systems. Now, maybe their morale is also suffering, but that's what I mean by trajectory. I, I, you know, I tend to think that's uh, right, but still, or, you know, the proviso is always war is uncertain and, uh, and who knows? My guess is we'll have another conversation about this before too long. Yeah. Well, thanks for this one.